This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 325 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Yuval Noah Harari. He's a history professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and his 2011 book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, has sold over a million copies and has received endorsements from figures such as Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Barack Obama. And we'll be speaking with him today about his recent books, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century and Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Casper's mattresses are designed by humans for humans. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Ordering a Casper mattress is such a good decision, it'll make you feel like you've just experienced millions of years of evolution and achieved godlike intelligence. So just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. And remember that you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Yuval Noah Harari. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so your new book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, includes a chapter on science fiction. So could you talk about why you wanted to include a chapter on science fiction in the book? Because I think that uh, today science fiction is the most important artistic genre. It shapes the understanding of the public uh, of things like artificial intelligence and biotechnology, which are likely to change our life and to change society more than anything else in the coming decades. Uh, so I think science fiction has a real political and social responsibility today uh, to give people the right impressions and to draw their attention to the most important problems. You actually say that uh, we certainly need good science, but from a political perspective, a good science fiction movie is worth far more than an article in Science or Nature. Yes, uh, I definitely think so. Uh, it is extremely important still to have articles in Science and Nature, of course, <laughs> but in order to inform the public and to have a, a good political debate, uh, we the, most people will not read those articles. And science fiction movies and novels are the main, um, the, the main genre that shapes people's understanding of these developments. So this is why I think they are so important. I thought it was interesting that you talk so glowingly about the potential of science fiction, but then most of the examples you give of science fiction movies uh, you're, you're pretty critical of. Uh, so you say, for example, that uh, perhaps the worst sin of present-day science fiction is that it tends to confuse intelligence with consciousness. Yes. Um, in most science fiction books and movies about artificial intelligence, 
the main plot revolves around the moment when the computer of the robot gains consciousness and starts having feelings. And, you know, either the, 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 the scientist falls in love with the robot or the robot tries to kill all the people or both things happen at the same time. And uh, this causes a lot of people uh, to have concerns that really, as artificial intelligence improves, we might face some kind of robot rebellion and we might start to deal with ethical questions like uh, how should we treat conscious robots? And, uh, you know, a series like Westworld entirely revolves around these questions. And I think that this is, this diverts the attention of the public from the really um, important and realistic problems to things that are unlikely to happen in, in, in any time soon. And even worse, they, they, they saw this, this seed of confusion being between intelligence and consciousness, which are in fact completely different things. Uh, intelligence is the ability to solve problems. Consciousness is the ability to have feelings like pain and pleasure and fear and, and joy and love. Now, in humans, and also in other mammals like chimpanzees and dogs and dolphins, consciousness and intelligence indeed go together. They go hand in hand. We solve problems by having feelings. But computers work in a completely different way. And there is absolutely no indication that computers are anywhere on the road to developing consciousness. There has been an enormous development in computer intelligence over the last few few decades, but zero development in computer consciousness. And at least at present, it seems likely that computers might become far more intelligent than us without ever developing consciousness, without ever developing uh, feelings. It's a bit like uh, airplanes being able to fly far faster than birds without ever developing feathers. They just do it in a different way. So it's the same with the way that, that computers and, and humans solve problems. They do it in a fundamentally different way. So there are many things to be, to be concerned about regarding artificial intelligence, but a robot rebellion or how to treat uh, conscious, uh, conscious computers, I don't think this, this should be at the top of our list of, of problems to be concerned about. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I've said that a lot in our reviews of Westworld that I feel that the, the conscious robots, that's been done before a lot in science fiction. And not only is the non-conscious intelligences, is it, would it be more uh, relevant to the, to the present, but it would also be more dramatically interesting to my mind because it hasn't been explored as much. How are people manipulated or how do they feel about intelligences that seem human but aren't actually conscious? Yes, I think the two maybe most important things to investigate is, first of all, the impact on the job market uh, and, 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 and how artificial intelligence is going to change the economy and, and society in the coming decades. And you definitely don't need to assume any kind of, of conscious robots in order to realize that AI is going to transform the job market and the economy in really in an unprecedented way. And one of the biggest questions to explore is what happens if millions, maybe even billions of people are pushed out of the job market and become part of, of, of a new useless class. And a few, I think, science fiction uh, novels and movies go in that direction, but, but, most, but most don't. Uh, 
And then the other interesting question to, to explore is what happens when humans increasingly um, uh, give authority to make decisions about their lives, both in private and in collective matters. They give authority to non-conscious but highly intelligent algorithms. So it's not that the computer is becoming conscious and is trying to manipulate me on purpose. The far more interesting question is what happens when most of the decisions in your life are actually taken by a completely non-conscious system, which is nevertheless far more intelligent than you and therefore can solve problems uh, better than you. If you look at the history of, of, of human art, so... Um, most, I guess, most novels and theater plays and movies, they revolve around the idea of life as a drama of decision-making. That there's a climax of the movie, or it's a climax of the Shakespeare play, you need to make some very important decision. Uh, who are you going to marry? Uh, who are you going to kill? Whether you're going to, to join this side or the other side. So we live, really, really have this conception of life as a drama of decision-making. And what happens when the power to make this, these decisions, the authority to make these decisions, is transferred from Anna Karenina or from Hamlet or from Macbeth into the hands of Siri or into the hands of Alexa or Google Maps or, or anything like that? Uh, this is, uh, I think, the, one of the most important questions that science fiction should be addressing, should be exploring today, and it's, it's not being done enough. I think one issue that science fiction authors face is that they want to tell stories that humans find dramatically satisfying. And so many of the technologies you talk about in this book would make it hard to tell a dramatically satisfying story. So, for example, you talk about how fMRI scanners may be able to read our thoughts in the future or that people might have mm -hmm. complete control over their emotions in the future thanks to technology or drugs or so on. And people who mm -hmm. can't keep secrets from each other and people who have complete control over their emotions are sort of the exact opposite of what people, what audiences <laughs> tend to find dramatically interesting. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. I, I think that one of the m most difficult problems to overcome is that if you explore the realistic scenarios, you might lose most of, the, of your audience, uh, which is why it's so difficult to do it. And, and this is not a new problem. If you look at, at most science fiction um, plots for, 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 for decades and generations in the past, in most cases, they just take ordinary emotional and social conflicts from our own world and dramatize them against a futuristic background. So if you think about Star Trek, there is absolutely nothing futuristic about the people and their dilemmas. They are just, you know, middle-class Americans who happen to be flying in a spaceship at a speed of light and exploring other planets. But otherwise, their emotional lives and their conflicts and social dilemmas, they are exactly the same as if they were living in a suburb of San Francisco or something. Um, so I understand why, why, what is the difficulty. Yes, it's very difficult to really explore the, uh, uh, the future. But, uh, I guess this, this would be the greatest challenge for, uh, for good science fiction authors. Yeah, because you make the point about how monotonous the messages are of so much, so much of our storytelling that it's all you just have to look inside yourself and be true to yourself and find the, the answers within. 
And it's seldom that you have to transform into some completely different type of being or something. Yeah, and, and, and again, the, the key issue about the future, the key issue about the future of technology is that very soon um, it will be possible to hack you. So the last thing you should do is listen to yourself, is listen to your heart, because your heart might be a double agent. Maybe your heart has been hacked. Maybe your brain has been hacked. So I would like to see a science fiction plot in which uh, the, the hero begins by listening to himself and eventually realizes that he's been listening to, to the enemy because the enemy has managed to, to hack his or her, her, her mind. And what do you do then? That's the most interesting question. What happens once you realize that your brain has been hacked? And, uh, you know, it's going to be a very difficult task to write this, uh, this novel or to, to, uh, to create this movie. But, uh, if there is a, a genius science fiction author out there listening to us, uh, this is the challenge. Do you ever think about writing science fiction yourself? Um, a bit. I, I, I toy with the idea. Maybe I, I won't be completely surprised if I one day do it. But, uh, at, at present, I, I still have, uh, too much science and too much history to write. Maybe when I don't have anything new to say about that, <laughs> I'll move on to, to writing science fiction. When you're talking about your brain being hacked, I thought it was, I didn't know about this, but you say that the Facebook algorithms can actually predict people's answers on a personality test better than their friends or coworkers or even their spouse. Uh, yeah, in, in, in some areas, algorithms are already, they already have a better understanding of our feelings and choices than our friends, our spouses, in some cases, even ourselves. I mean, humans have this really unlimited capacity for self-deceptions. Uh, there are many things we don't want to know about ourselves or to recognize about ourselves. So it's not such a big surprise that sometimes an external algorithm can know us already today even better than we know ourselves because uh, it's, it's, um, it's frightening to really look into yourself uh, too carefully. Well, right, because in science fiction, so often the, the AIs rise up and there's armies of robots that enslave humanity. And you say that what's much mm -hmm. more likely to happen is that people are going to basically be enslaved by AIs, but it's just going to be because the AIs always give you the best advice, so much better than anything you could come up with on your own, that you'll just go through your whole life doing everything they say because it would be illogical not to. Yes, I mean, we, we, are, we are already beginning to see it in some areas, like uh, navigation of space. So previously, if you navigate your way around town, you rely on your own knowledge, on your own gut instincts, on your own intuitions. But increasingly, you learn to outsource these decisions to Google Maps or to Waze or to some other non-conscious algorithm. You learn by experience. You reach an intersection. Your intuition tells you to turn right. Google turns, tells you to turn left. You listen to your intuition, you get stuck in traffic, and you miss an important appointment. Next time you learn, better listen to Google. And after one or two years of listening to Google, you no longer, you lose this ability. You know, it's like a muscle. It's use it or lose it. So already today, you have quite a lot of people who have lost the ability to navigate space by themselves. And even more important example is, uh, is Google search really, uh, looking for information. 
one of the most important abilities of humans is to look for information to find answers uh, to, to questions that bother them. And increasingly, more and more people, the only thing they know how to do is just uh, to, to search Google, uh, which, which, you know, it, it, it's an amazing tool, but our own ability to search for information uh, is declining. And again, it's not... The, the key thing is that the algorithms are, are just better than us in many cases. This is why it's so tempting to shift the authority to them and to listen to them. The big question is what happens when these kinds of shifts in authority concern not only decisions like whether to turn right or left at the intersection or whether to watch this series or that series on Netflix, what happens when the same thing applies to the most important decisions in life, like uh, what to study in university, or whom to date, or whom to marry, or whom to vote for on the elections? The same basic reasoning and mechanisms that today make us prefer uh, Google Maps to our intuition in 10 or 20 years, may make us listen to the algorithms even when we come to choose our profession or our uh, spouse or our uh, politician. There's a really sort of um, ominous part in the book where you're talking about how good these systems would be at teaching us skills. And then you sort of comment, but what would be the point really of learning these skills if the system could do everything better than us anyway? Uh, yes, uh, one of the big questions is uh, what will humans be good for if the algorithms become so much better than, than us in more and more tasks? And, you know, of course, this is not a, a, a new fear or a new issue. Ever since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you have this specter of machines becoming better than humans and pushing humans out of the job market and, uh, and, and, and changing the, the foundations of society and the political system. And up till now, it never happened. For every job lost to a machine, a new job emerged that humans could st still do better. And for every skill that you lost, because now some machine is doing it, you developed a new skill. But there are good reasons to suspect that maybe uh, this time it's different. Uh, up till now, machines competed with humans only or mainly in physical and manual skills. But now machines are co starting to compete with us in cognitive skills. And we don't know of a third field beyond the physical and the cognitive in which humans will always have uh, a secure edge. Another problem is that even if, as all jobs disappear, new jobs will appear, it's questionable whether people will be able to uh, retrain and, and reinvent themselves. I mean, if you're a 50-year-old truck driver and you just lost your job to a self-driving truck, but there is a new job, either in teaching yoga or in uh, uh, a software uh, design, maybe you don't have the skill and even the personality to, to fulfill the new job. So you need to reinvent yourself, which is very difficult at 50. And even if you succeed in doing it, 10 years later, you have to do it again. Because one of the basic features of the AI revolution, which again, most people don't realize or don't realize enough, is that it's not going to be a single watershed event. 
It's not that in 2030, there'll be some big explosion, big AI explosion, 50% of the jobs are lost, some new jobs appear, we have 10 years of, it's 10 difficult years of adjusting to this new situation. And then eventually, the job market settles down into a new equilibrium and everything is okay. It will not be like that because AI is not even close to its full potential. It's developing exponentially. So the AI revolution is likely to be not a single watershed event, but a cascade of ever bigger disruptions. So you have one big disruption in 2030, and lots of jobs disappear, many new jobs appear, but then you have an even bigger disruption in 2040 or 2050, and many of the new jobs either completely change or again disappear. And it's questionable how many times can a human being reinvent himself or herself during your lifetime. And your lifetime is, is likely to be longer. And your uh, working years are also likely to be, to be longer. So would you be able to reinvent yourself four, five, six times during your life? The psychological stress is immense. So again, I, I would like to see a science fiction movie that explores this, you know, rather mundane issue of somebody having to reinvent themselves. And then at the end of the movie, just as they settle down into this new job after a difficult transition period, somebody comes and announces, oh, sorry, your new job has just been automated. You have to start from square one and reinvent yourself again. One thing I thought was really interesting is that you talk about these in Israel. You say there are these ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who they just sort of live on welfare and study the Torah all day. And yeah. <laughs> they don't actually have uh, – but that they actually have a self-reported higher level of life satisfaction than any other segment of Israeli society. Yes. One of the problems that people talk about with regard to the – impact of AI on the job market is that many people are likely to completely be pushed out of the job market, but then there will be so much new wealth that it will be possible to support them, even without them having to work. And then the big problem is going to be meaning. What will they do with their lives and how will they feel meaningful and purposeful? And here, the, uh, the example of, of the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel can provide an interesting uh, example or thought experiment that you can have all kinds of lifestyles that are completely independent of the job market and still provide people with a lot of purpose and meaning and all kinds of, uh, for example, religious vocations which seems to be completely outdated and belongs somewhere, say, in the Middle Ages or ancient times, may have a comeback. Uh, one of the uh, one of the sh- one of the mo- of the safest jobs in the 21st century might be, for example, a priest. Even though there are some experiments with with robot priests or robot monks uh, in East Asia, so uh, so there is things to explore on that front as well. Have you ever read uh, Douglas Adams' um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency? Uh, I, I'm afraid not. I, I've read The Hitchhiker's Guide, of course, but but not. Uh, uh, there, there's just a funny uh, thing. There's a funny agent. part in that where they, they, there's this robot monk, and the ad for it says uh, he'll believe things they wouldn't even believe in Salt Lake City. <laughs> 
Uh, well, in China, they are, they are now experimenting with such robot monks. Oh, so what? So what is the? I don't know about that. What's going on with the robot monks? Um, I'm not sure. I think he gives you blessings, and he chants prayers, and he chants all kinds of of, of sutras, um, and uh, um, maybe does other things as well. But 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 I'm not sure. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, to, to think about um, uh, a lot of religious ceremonies and religious practices. Do you really need consciousness in order for the ceremony to make sense or not? Um, there, there are going to be all kinds of interesting questions for the Pope and for the rabbis and for the ayatollahs in, in, in coming years. Uh, to give another completely like realistic, realistic example... Um, if you heard about clean meat, the idea of um, raising meat or creating meat from cells, if you want a steak, you just grow the steak from cells. You don't need to raise the cow and then kill the cow and, and, and take part of it and, and you have a steak, uh, which is a wonderful idea, both from an ethical perspective, because nobody suffers if you just raise a steak from cells, and also from an ecological perspective, because the meat and dairy industry is one of the biggest polluters and one of the biggest uh, uh, industries responsible for, for, for global warming and climate change. So it will be wonderful if we can replace all that with clean meat and, and, and clean milk just grown from cells. And there has been in the last five years an immense progress in, in this field. Uh, I think in 2013, they produced the first clean meat hamburger, a hamburger raised from cells, and it cost something like $300,000. Now the price is down to $10, and they hope that within 10 years you could have it in the supermarket and it will be cheaper and cleaner and uh, even more healthy than slaughtered meat. But then comes along the religious question. At least in Judaism and in Islam, there, are very, there is a long list of regulations and prohibitions regarding meat. Uh, you need to slaughter the animal in a very particular way for the meat to be kosher. Now, already today, there are discussions with Jewish rabbis whether clean meat will be kosher or not, because there, there was no slaughtering. There was never a cow. So is this meat or not? Is it kosher or not? Uh, there are going to be some very interesting discussions about such issues in, in, coming, in coming years. Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering with these ultra-Orthodox Jewish people in Israel, you, you say that their high life satisfaction is self-reported. And I was wondering, do you, do you believe that they actually have a higher uh, life satisfaction or are they, do they feel sort of pressure to pretend to be happier than they are? Whereas like an atheist would just say like, oh, I'm unhappy and I have no problem admitting that because I don't you know who, who cares. It's very difficult to tell because at least in Judaism, if you complain too much, this is a kind of sin. Uh, you're, you're, you're sinning against God. You should be grateful to God. So if you go about just uh, complaining about how, how difficult life is and how problematic the world is, uh, this is not good. So f from this perspective, it's, it's, it's a bit suspect uh, how they self-report. But on the other hand, uh, we do know from a lot of research that this feeling that my life has cosmic meaning, somebody is watching me, and everything I do, everything I eat, everything I say, this has cosmic meaning, this can contribute an awful lot to feeling uh, satisfied and, and, and in, in your life. 
Of course, you know, there is a very big philosophical question of whether what is more important, these uh, feelings of satisfaction or the truth. And uh, what do you think about building a satisfied life on a network of illusions and lies? Now, I think that ultimately, if you don't know the truth about yourself and about reality, you cannot really be happy and satisfied. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a complicated philosophical issue. I mean, one thing I think about a lot is that it seems like people just have a inborn need for these larger-than-life stories that teach uh, moral lessons and things like that. Um, but so many of our existing religions, they encode these really bad messages that people are going to hell and, you know, you should commit violence and all these things. And I, I sort of wonder a lot if fantasy and science fiction could sort of take the place of religion. They could, could fill, fulfill that need for here's the stories that are larger than life that teach you valuable lessons, but they don't have some of these, you know, but they can, first of all, they can update themselves so they can teach new ethics and, and don't get hidebound, but then um, they can still have that social function. Well, it has been done before. I mean, from a, from a, one perspective, you can say that religion is science fiction. That, or at least was. The science fiction of the ancient world was what we call today religion. That many of these holy texts telling about traveling to, to heaven and meeting angels and going to, to do the underworld and meeting all kinds of demons. This is just science fiction. Um, so, of course, the religious people will not be happy to hear it. Or I, I will maybe rephrase that. Even religious people will agree that all religions except one <laughs> are science fiction. My religion, this is, of course, the truth. If you're Jewish, you will say that Christianity is science fiction. If you're a Christian, you will say that Islam is science fiction. If you're a Muslim, you will say that Hinduism is science fiction, but not my religion. So from this perspective, it, it has already been done. Um, but the key to, uh, to creating a successful religion is you can never admit that it is fiction. You must believe that this is the truth. This is the highest truth of all. So you can't really fake it in, 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 this, in this sense. Uh, so, you're, so you don't think that I mean, I'm, I'm talking less. I'm talking more about just sort of the social function, I guess. That um, mm. you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just feel like because I kind of feel like science fiction and fantasy is my religion. It sort of functions that way. So I don't know. I'm an, I'm a proponent of that. Um, well, you know, science fiction can certainly uh, teach people ethics and teach people how to behave. A lot of science fiction is really a morality play. Uh, again, to give the, this, the, 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 the obvious example of Star Trek, so every episode in Star Trek is this liberal morality play about how should we respect diversity and, and, and whatever. So uh, it, it's, it's definitely possible to convey moral lessons through science fiction and through all kinds of fictions. You know, Harry Potter also is a wonderful way to convey ethical lessons in a in a in an interesting way, in an engaging way to millions of people. Yeah. I mean the work of science fiction that you mentioned that you have the highest opinion of is Brave New World. Could you talk yes. about why that's the the one you admire the most? Um for several reasons. I mean, first of all, I think it's philosophically maybe one of the deepest 
science fiction ex explorations and also perhaps the most relevant to the dilemmas we are facing right now. Um, instead of, I mean, really, I think Brave New World is an exploration of what happens when society places pleasure and happiness as its highest ideals and then hacks the human operating system, the human body and the human brain in order to create this situation in which people are all the time satisfied and pleased with, with what is happening. And this is, a, I think, a far more relevant and also far more uh, interesting exploration than what you find in most dystopias like uh, George Orwell's 1984. Uh, when you read 1984, it's obvious to you that this is a terrible situation. Nobody wants to live in such a world. The only question left open after you finish reading 1984 is how do we avoid uh, getting there? But with Brave New World, it's much, much more difficult. I mean, everybody is satisfied and happy and pleased with everything that happens. Uh, there are no rebellions, no revolutions, there is no secret police, uh, there is just free sex and rock and roll and drugs and, 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 and whatever. And nevertheless, you have this very uneasy feeling that something is wrong here. And it's very difficult to put your finger on what's wrong with a society in which you hacked people in such a way that they are happy all the time, or they are satisfied all the time. And you have this famous experiment with rats, that uh, you can make this contraption that the, the rats would put, press a lever, uh, which excites a certain part of the, of the brain of the rat, which creates feelings of excitement and, and, and satisfaction. And the rats will just press the lever again and again and again until, until they die of, of exhaustion and starvation. And this is basically the scenario that Brave New World explores. And it's also the scenario, or it's also the world, that we might be creating right now. And it's not easy at all to understand what's wrong with that. And what is even more amazing about Brave New World is that uh, it was written in the early 1930s. I mean, Huxley was writing when Hitler was coming to power, when Mussolini and Stalin and all these figures were, uh, uh, were dominating the political landscape. But he still managed to envision um, a consumerist society without concentration camps, without a secret police, which is dedicated to which, which really tries to manipulate people, not through fear and not through force, but through pleasure and through desire. And his ability to, to do it is, is really astounding. I feel like there's a certain conservatism to so much dystopian science fiction where any change from the status quo is sort of taken for granted to be something bad that we should pull back from and go back to the quote-unquote natural state of things. And so it is sort mm -hmm. of hard for me to see what's wrong in principle with a society like in Brave New World where uh, you know, people just take drugs to maintain a, their mental equilibrium all the time. I mean, if it's distracting them from important work that needs to be done, that's one thing. But if all the important work has been done, what's wrong with people just being in a pleasurable state of consciousness all the time? Yeah, th that's a very good question. And again, one of the another amazing thing about Brave New World is that when Huxley wrote it in the 1930s and when it was published, 
It was obvious to everybody that this is a frightening dystopia. And today, more and more people read Brave New World as a straight-faced utopia. And I think this, this shift is, is, is very interesting and tells a lot about the changes in our worldview over the last century. And I do think that there is, there is a very serious debate here. I don't think that the answer to what's wrong with Brave New World is, is so obvious. Yeah, well, I mean, there's certain there's details in the stories, like the different casts and so on, that you could, you know, that are that's that, and, and people aren't happy with their place in the society and so on. But uh, it seems like you wouldn't need to tweak it very much to, um, you know, obviate a lot of those those concerns. Yeah, I mean, of course, the technology is extremely primitive. He didn't know anything about uh, uh, DNA and AI and things like that, but. With regard to the social issue, that this is a, a very hierarchical society with very strict, a very strict caste system, but everybody is very happy with the caste to which they belong. I think this is again a very insightful move on, on, on the side of Huxley because it doesn't go for a very, um, simplistic utopia in which there is there are no social distinctions there are no hierarchies no he he does present a very complex uh and and therefore realistic social scenario but still everybody are happy with their caste except for the outsider john who comes from this uh, uh native american reservation and he has these funny ideas about freedom and equality and and he tries to convince everybody in london uh, in futuristic London, that they should throw away the drugs and they should fight for freedom and for equality, but nobody is listening to him. And even the uh, the world government um, treats him rather benignly. They just say, okay, you don't like our social system, that's fine, you can just go and live it as a hermit somewhere. They don't send him to a concentration camp or, or kill him. I mean, I guess the issue, though, is that we seem to be heading for a, a a society sort of like Brave New Worlds, but not at all equal. I mean, this is what you're sort of saying with these, <laughs> this idea about the upgrading people into superhumans, that it's not going to be, uh, you know, everyone's not going to be happy in, in the future that we seem to be headed toward. No, um, the idea of Brave New World is that, yes, uh, we cannot get rid completely of social distinctions. But by hacking the human brain, by hacking the human operating system, we can take out the unpleasantness out of social hierarchy. So uh, maybe in 2050 or 2100, the world will be divided into really different biological castes because you could use biotechnology to engineer different kinds of humans. So we will have the most unequal societies that ever existed in history, but exactly because you can hack and manipulate the human operating system, you could maybe take the unpleasantness, take the dissatisfaction out of the equation. So people will be satisfied with whatever social, with whatever caste they belong to. Uh, this is what, this is the idea behind the social system that, that Huxley, uh, depicts. And the key issue is that once you can hack human beings, you cannot take for granted 
Anything we've known so far about human psychology or human society or human history. Yes, until today, if you had hierarchies, you also had dissatisfaction because this is how the human brain functions. But if you know how to manipulate the human brain and change it, you cannot take anything like that for granted. But I guess what I'm saying, and this is something you address in the book, is in Brave New Worlds, the government is happy to keep producing SOMA for everybody, which, which presumably has some economic cost. And would the government mm -hmm. really be willing to keep manufacturing SOMA at some at whatever cost, generation after generation, or at some point would they not be happy to subsidize the, the um, lives of all these drugs? Uh, sort of I, I, I think another thing about this idea of hacking human beings, that what happens when we have the biological knowledge to decipher the human operating system and change it, is that once you have the knowledge, it is extremely cheap. Until today, for all of history... Governments, when they tried to manipulate people or when they tried to improve the situation of people, they had to change mainly the world outside. You had to build bridges, you had to drain swamps, you had to build schools, you had to train teachers, you had to invest a lot of money in, in, in hospitals, in sewage system, in all that. This was very costly because you're trying to change the world outside so that people will be more satisfied. And very often the results were quite meager because no matter what you achieved on the outside world, uh, human brains and human minds work in such a way that nothing ever satisfies them for long. As conditions improve, expectations increase, and people can be as dissatisfied as before. You just think about the last couple of centuries, what amazing achievements we have made. If you could tell your great-great-great-grandfathers 300 years ago how the ordinary, the average person lives today, say, in the United States, they would think that we are living in paradise and every day we wake up with a big smile, dancing and singing all day. But we don't, because we just take it for granted, all these past achievements, and we want more. What happens, however, when the government, let's say, gains the ability to start changing not the reality outside, but the reality inside? You don't, know, you don't need all these expensive bridges and hospitals and schools. You just need a few tiny tweaks to a, simple or, to, to a small organ, the human brain, and there you have it. And uh, if you manage to tweak the satisfaction mechanism in the brain, it becomes uh, even easier. And this is not just, a, you know, science fiction. This is not just a, fo a, a forecast for the future. It is happening already today in schools and armies and other institutions that, uh, and, you know, this is the immense attraction of drugs. Instead of changing the school, just change the brain of the student. It's much cheaper. Instead of changing the army or not going to war, just develop a new drug and change the brain of the soldier. It's much cheaper. In the vast majority of cases, if you have the biological knowledge, it is far, far cheaper to change the inner reality than the outer reality. And therefore, this danger of an extreme dictatorial regime because when, it, when the dictatorship works by changing the reality outside, there are huge expenses and obstacles. But when a dictator 
or a, or a authoritarian, totalitarian regime is able to control the reality inside, um, it's almost impossible to resist it because the minute that you even think about resisting, they are, they are on to you. And also they need to incur uh, uh, far fewer expenses. Um, and I'm not sure, of course, I mean, nobody knows how the world would look like in 2050 or 2100, but we might be going in that direction. I mean, think about, I don't know, the, the regime in North Korea with the ability to hack people's brains. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely terrifying. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you, you talk about how life extension is very likely to happen. And you, you say, like, how would you feel if your boss were 120 years old and his ideas were formed when Victoria was still queen and he was likely to stay your boss for a couple of decades more? <laughs> um, I, so this yeah. is something I, I, I debate with my girlfriend sometimes, but I, I, I've posited, should, should you lose your ability to vote at a certain age or should young people get more votes or thing or something in order so that the society isn't controlled in perpetuity by very, very old people with extended lifespans. That's just what you thought about that. Um, I didn't think about this particular idea or this particular point. Uh, of course, there is a question of whether there will be young people around. Uh, the birth as life expectancy increases, in most cases, birth rates decrease. So if life expectancy increases to indefinite, People can live, not forever, but indefinitely, they have no expiry date. This might be coupled with a, a complete drop in birth rates to zero, near zero. And then the, the, the question of what happens to the younger generation is, is, is a mute question. Uh, but of course, this, this is just one, one scenario. Um, the, it's certainly true that the struggle between the generations is going to take on new and, and un unexpected dimensions as the old folks just stick around indefinitely. And because they have been here before us, they have much more power than us. And if they are not going to die, then we are stuck in this inferior position uh, basically forever. And what kind of society and what kind of relations like between parents and children are like when the parents know that they are not going to die someday and leave their children behind. But, you know, if, if you live to be 200, and yes, when I was 30, I was pregnant and I had this kid, and he is now 170, but, you know, this was 170 years ago, mm -hmm. and this was such a small part of my life. I mean, what... What kind of parent-offspring relations you have in such a society? I think this is another wonderful idea for a science fiction movie. You know, without robot rebellions, without some big apocalypse, without a tyrannical government, just a simple movie about the relations between a mother and a son when the mother is 200 years old and the son is 170 years old. I don't know if this is true, but I read one time that even if you were to cure aging and disease, that the average lifespan would still only be 150 or 200 years because of accidents, of people dying of accidents. Um, and so you would have some people who are thousands of years old, but just on average, it would be about 150 or 200. I don't remember where I read that, though, so yeah. don't quote me on that. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, as this is the big difference between immortality and amortality. Immortality is the divine condition in which no matter what happens, you cannot die. 
Amortality is a very different situation in which you can die. If a truck runs you over, that's it, you're dead, and they can't bring you back from the dead. But you don't have a fixed expiry date. If you manage to avoid all the trucks and all the terrorists and all the accidents, uh, medicine is so advanced that they can keep you alive indefinitely. And the maybe one of the most interesting things about this condition is that it is an extremely terrifying condition. It will cause an epidemic of stress and anxiety that we have never seen before. Because, you know, today people are willing to take risks all the time. You cross the street, you take a risk. You go on a plane, you take a risk. But you know that you're going to die anyway. So um, so the, 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 uh, uh, the danger... Is, is, is not so, so huge. I mean, you're not, you're not going to lose eternity just because a track ran you over. <laughs> but if you think that you have a reasonable chance to live forever, if you just avoid all these accidents, your willingness to take even the smallest risk, uh, will, will disappear. And people will live extremely anxious lives, constantly fearing minuscule dangers because they they have a chance to live forever and they might miss it. And this, again, is, is, is something that for us it's extremely hard to imagine, but it could result in a very different psychology and a very different society than anything we've seen before in human history. I wanted to ask you because, you know, when I was growing up, one of my favorite books was this book called The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton by Larry Niven. And the premise is that there are these criminals and they it's in the future and they kidnap people and break them up for their organs and sell their organs on the black market. And uh, organ transplants mm. are just really common. And so I was really sort of imagined that something like that would happen. And you you say that the technology is there for situations like that, but it just hasn't happened that – Sometimes the there are these potentials for technology, and just for whatever reason, they never um, actualize. Yeah, and, and technology is certainly not destiny. Uh, technology is never deterministic. The same technology can be used for many purposes or not used at all. If you think about the big, the previous big technological revolution, uh, the industrial revolution. So the the, the technologies of this revolution. Uh, radio, electricity, cars, trains, you could use them to build a fascist regime or a communist dictatorship or a liberal democracy. The train and the radio didn't tell them, didn't tell you how to use them. And some technologies are not used at all or, or used to a very limited extent. Uh, and, and organ transplants, I mean, you could have envisioned, envisioned 50 years ago that uh, organ that we will develop a huge market for organ transplants with developing countries having these huge body farms in which millions of people are being raised in order to harvest their organs and then sold to rich people in, 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 in more developed countries. And such a market could be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And technologically... It is completely feasible. There is absolutely no technical impediment to creating such a market and, and these huge body farms. But in fact, even though there are cases, there is a black market for, for body parts. And there is this situation that, yes, people in developing countries, their organs are being harvested in all kinds of ways and sold. 
Uh, it's in a, it's on a much lower scale. I mean, the the, the phenomena is much less uh, uh, extensive than you could have imagined. So there are many these kind of uh, uh, again science fiction scenarios which never materialize because society can take action to protect itself and to regulate the dangerous technologies. And this is very important to remember as we look to the future. We've been talking for the last hour about all kinds of dystopian visions of how AI and bioengineering could be used to create all kinds of very frightening scenarios. But none of that is inevitable. We can still take action and we can still regulate these technologies to prevent the worst case scenarios and to use this, these technologies mainly for good. But I mean, you say in the book that that artificial intelligence and biotechnology are going to define the next define the century, but that they're hardly a blip on the current political radar. Is there yeah. any way we can get them to be more than just a blip on the political radar? Well, I, I'm doing my best as as, as a scientist <laughs> to to uh, write popular science books and make people realize that these are the most important questions we face. But I, I think we could use uh, uh, the help of Hollywood and Bollywood and and uh, and then the science fiction uh, authors, uh, because as as we said in the beginning of of this conversation, if you want to raise public awareness of such issues, a good science fiction movies could be worth not one but a hundred articles in Science or in Nature or even a hundred articles in the New York Times. One of the questions that you end the book with is you say, what's more valuable, intelligence or consciousness? And it seems pretty clear to me that consciousness is what gives life any sort of meaning, that if you, even if you had all these data processing, you know, massively intelligent data processing systems spread throughout the galaxy, as you described, that, were, that had no consciousness, that that would be a completely meaningless existence. Yes. Um, but it sounds like there are people who, who, dis, who would dispute that, who, who would value that the just just the data processing for its own sake i think in most cases this is because of this basic misunderstanding between intelligence and, and consciousness um they they they, they somehow in, not in all cases but in many cases they tend to assume that if you have this very sophisticated data processing system it will develop some kind of consciousness so if you spread a huge network of data processing throughout the universe, you will effectively create a kind of cosmic consciousness. You will be creating God. And that seems like a wonderful vision. But the, the, I think that this is not inevitable. You can create the most sophisticated data processing system in the world or in the universe. And it will be extremely intelligent, far more intelligent than any human being, or even than the combined intelligence of the whole human race. And still, it will have exactly zero consciousness. It will have absolutely no feelings, no experiences, no love, no hate, no pain, no pleasure, no nothing. Because you talk about a lot about this idea in the book of, of dataism. Um, who would you say would be some of the leading proponents of that idea? Like, are there are particular people who, who you would point to as sort of the prophets of this, of this new religion? Uh, much of Silicon Valley is, um, is, is all about da dataism. Again, the idea that processing data 
is the answer to almost any question. And that accumulating data is maybe the most important uh, asset in the world. And even more so, understanding everything that happens in the world, whether it's the economy or the political system or even the human body, in terms of a mechanism for processing data. This idea is, is now very widespread, and, and not only in, in Silicon Valley, but also in much of the academic world, more and more economists understand the economic system in terms of data processing. And even you have fields like uh, neurotheology and neuromusicology that understand religion and art in terms of data processing. So it's it's all around us, and it's maybe the most important idea of our time. I, I like the way you put it here. You say, for millions of years, we were enhanced chimpanzees. In the future, we may become oversized ants. Hmm. Yes, uh, a chimpanzee, uh, of course, is a social animal. In order to survive, a chimpanzee must cooperate with other chimpanzees to some extent, but uh, a chimpanzee relies above all on his or her own physical and social abilities. Uh, to survive as a chimpanzee, you need a lot of, of physical dexterity and, and social skills and to know your territory and to understand other animals and other chimpanzees and, and, and so forth and so on. And humans in the beginning were, were just uh, uh, kind of very intelligent chimpanzees. As a human being, as a hunter-gatherer in the Stone Age, of course, again, you relied on, on cooperating with other people, but above all, you relied on superb physical and cognitive, and cognitive skills of your own. You needed to know many, many things to do by yourself in order to survive. And ants, in contrast, they every ant is very weak and knows how to do just a few things, but the cooperation, the network of cooperation of hundreds and, and thousands of ants creates this kind of superorganism, uh, which is much more powerful and effective than any single ant. And most ants cannot, uh, cannot survive for any length of time if they are separated from the, from the colony, from the network, because they can't survive on their own. And this is now happening to humans, that each one of us specializes in more and more limited, in a more and more limited field. And for 99.99% of our needs, we completely rely on the network and on the abilities and skills of other people. And if we had to survive by ourselves, we will die very shortly. I mean, I don't know how to get the food that I eat, how to make the clothes that I'm wearing, how to build the house in which I live, how to cure myself if I have some injury or, or, or some disease. I know basically one thing. I know how to write history books. Hmm. And for everything else, I rely on the network. And in this, uh, we, we can say that humans are no longer uh, intelligent chimpanzees. We are more like oversized ants. Yeah. This is, a, this is all such interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I just want to ask you, do you have any, uh, any final thoughts or what are you working on after, uh, what are you working on next uh, for your next project? Well, I'm, I'm still deep in, in, in the process of publishing the new book of uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It will take me about two or three months to do the global book tour. 
and then this ends around November. And then in December, I'm going for a 60 days meditation retreat. Um, I'm doing Vipassana meditation. And after all the hectic work and all the talking, I think I can use two months of complete silence <laughs> and internal observation. And I come back in February and then who knows, whatever happens, happens. Well, no, that sounds great. And yeah, I, I do hope that um, some people listening to this will take some of your ideas and express them in the form of science fiction books and stories and movies, because uh, I, I think that you're really, you know, you really have your finger on the pulse of, of the future. And, uh, and I, I think it's, it's just really, really cool, interesting um, ideas that more people should, uh, should definitely familiarize themselves with. And so uh, I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Yuval Noah Harari, and these books are called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century and Homo Deus. And so Yuval, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Yuval Noah Harari for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Linda Bond and Sophie Schultz, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.